Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, the message I've entitled this morning for our Easter uh, Sunday is Easter in Isaiah. Uh, I uh, always feel like uh, when I look at Isaiah 52 and 53, and take your Bible if you have that, and open that up. Uh, before we do that, I just got the signal, let's dismiss our children to Sunday school. All parents were horrified that I forgot that. Appreciate all our little ones and, uh, and our teachers and their ministry and the lives of our children. And uh, thank you, Diane. Appreciate that. Easter in Isaiah. I always feel like when I approach this text that, uh, like uh, Moses at the burning bush, remember that in, in Exodus uh, 3 and 4? Uh, I always feel that way. There's a, there's a sense of holy hush that falls upon my heart that uh, when God said in the form of Christ at that Christophany there at the burning bush, take off your shoes, for the ground that you stand is holy ground. You can't hardly read Isaiah or study it or hear it preached, Isaiah 52 and 53, without that same sense of awe and wonder and absolute reverence. This is the very heart of the Bible. In Isaiah... Uh, writes so wonderfully of the coming Savior. It's incredible, as we're going to have the joy of looking through this and seeing this. So, take off your shoes. You know, in the Charles Dickinson novel, A Tale of Two Cities, a young French aristocrat was condemned to die by the guillotine during the bloody French Revolution. His punishment was based solely on his forefathers' crimes against the peasantry of that country. The hour before his execution, he was visited by a young English friend who could have passed for his twin. After the guard had left, the friend overpowered the doomed man with an anesthetic, and he exchanged even clothes with him. Then pretending to be one of the condemned to die, he called the jailer, and he asked that his unconscious visitor or supposedly overcome with grief, be removed and returned to his home. And the nobleman was saved from such a guillotine death. And then, as Dickinson, Dickens wrote, on his way to the guillotine, the young Englishman spoke these final words. And I have them on your sheet. He said this, It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. And he comforted himself with these words, I am the resurrection and the life, said the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty five. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. As he took the, the replacement, the substitution of the nobleman and died in his stead. Well, today... Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, concludes what is called the Passion Week. And we have said so many times 
It's not passion as a man may have for his wife, and I hope you do have passion for your wife. It's not used that way. It comes right from the Greek word, and it means suffering. It was the week that our Lord suffered. And we remember that with Maudy Thursday and Good Friday and the nailing to the cross. And now it's Sunday morning, and it concludes that Passion Week. On Palm Sunday, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem on that very day. He rode in as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He taught the people. He cleansed the temple. He healed the sick. And just for an instant, it was a taste of the millennial here on earth. It was a reversal of the curse to some limited de- degree. It was a picture of heaven, if you will. But he was arrested. He was tried. He was brutally beaten. He was nailed. Nailed, I say, to that Roman cross and executed on that Friday so many years ago. All in one week. All that transpired during that Passion Week. And yet Jesus did the will of the Father completely. He drank the cup of the Father's will. Remember, he prayed in Gethsemane, Father, if it be thy will, remove this cup from me. But it was the will of the Father that he drank it down to the very dregs. And he suffered in your place and in mine as our sin substitute as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world at great cost. He did it. Oh, did you know that Jesus' sufferings, his death, and his resurrections were, resurrection was foretold in God's holy and most wonderful word 700 years prior to the actual event. Did you know that? It's here in our text in Isaiah 52 and 53, that uh, unfolds in an amazing prophetic utterance. You see, God spoke through Isaiah and gave us this prophecy. And you should know that this text that we're going to look at this morning on Easter Sunday, as we unfold Easter in Isaiah, is the most often quoted text in the New Testament Scriptures. There's no question in the hearts and minds of the apostles and the writers of the New Testament that uh, the fulfillment of this utterly was the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the promise of his soon coming again was foretold by Isaiah. Take your Bible and look at Isaiah. We're going to have the uh, suffering servant sonata, and that's what this is, begins in chapter 52, verse 13 those last three verses, and then it moves into Isaiah 53. We're going to see three glorious stanza, for it is a sonata or a suffering song, if you will. And so stanza seems to fit. But each of these stanzas foretell to us both the work and the reward of Jesus. You see, I want you never to underestimate the wonder of your Bible. It is the written word, and it teaches us of the living word. And it's a, it's a unity from beginning to end. And as Charles Stanley often would say, and probably even the maps at the back of the Bible, it is God's wonderful word. It's a shame that in many of our churches today, we sort of begin two-thirds of the way through and go right to Matthew, the New Testament, having little understanding or appreciation of the foundation 
that of which the New Testament is built on. God is a God of truth, and all truth is God's truth. And as he gave the truth beginning in Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, it is saying one message, and it is simply this, that God has prepared for us a Savior. Now, Eve thought that she had that Savior, that seed of the woman, in Genesis 4.1. I have gotten the man-child, the promised one from Genesis 3.15, from the Lord. But she was to be sadly disappointed. And all the way through, it's waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to that uh, appointed day when God would so send his son born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of the woman. And John puts it this way in John 1, God uh, uh, made uh, in flesh his own Son. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to have the appreciation that all the Bible, from one end cover to the other end, is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, and it teaches us of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christological, it's very center. And so it should be no surprise that God, who knows all things, the end from the beginning, and has a plan that includes all things, should so tell us in the amazing way through Isaiah's pen, of what is going to happen 700 years. Now think back at our own point in time. Here we're in the, 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 the year 2008. Go back 700 years, and Columbus has not even discovered the Western world. Amerigo Vespucci has not sailed yet. And all the great explorers, the Reformation has not happened. The Renaissance has not happened. That is an enormous chunk of time. That's the period of time we're talking about from Isaiah when he wrote this to the actual fulfillment. And there in Bethlehem, when Mary gave birth to the Christ child, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God is wonderful. It is glorious. There are many pulpits today that do not believe this. There are messages that are being preached that talk about, well, the, really the essence of Easter and the Resurrection Sunday is newness, and things start over like spring. And isn't that wonderful? i got news for you. It's wonderful. That's not the message of the Bible. Christ came forth bodily. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I put my hands in his, in his palms where the nails were driven through and into his side where the spear was thrust. I won't believe. I won't believe. You see, it's a real faith, for Christ had a real body, and he really came forth. And if he didn't, I'm not one of these romantics, well, let's just keep talking this kind of thing, even if it didn't come true. If that's the case, I would throw my Bible away, and I'd never come back to church again. I'd stay home and read the paper, watch nonsense on TV, and drink coffee, and have little sweet rolls, like so many people do. I'd throw my Bible. I'd never give another penny. Never would I. You see, it's, it is the cornerstone truth of the Christian faith. And when one cover to the other cover, it teaches the same thing. 
It's what our Lord uh, hinted at on the road to Emmaus when the two grieving disciples thought Jesus was going to be their Redeemer. But he's died and he's buried. And the Lord joined them, beginning with Moses and the prophets. What? He taught all things about himself. That was Old Testament. New Testament hadn't even been written yet. And he rebuked them for not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Let that not be you. Well, in this wonderful uh, song, the Sonata of the Suffering Servant that Isaiah writes, there are three glorious stanzas foretelling to us both the work and the reward of the Lord Jesus, who is the servant here in view. In suffering for us, Jesus provided salvation for all who would believe. Not for all people as a carte blanche, blank check for all humanity, but for those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and are wonderfully saved. You must believe, young and old. You must be born again. Jesus said that. It's not optional. There's none good. No, not one. Not this guy, nor any of you. We're born in sin, and we sin horribly. God is holy. How can he have fellowship with unsinful, unholy people? God provided the only way of escape through his own son on the cross, and to show the approval of all that Christ did, he raised his son from the dead on that first Easter morning. Praise the Lord. Well, let's look at Isaiah 52, verse 13, 14, and 15. For we're going to notice the first stanza, uh, God speaks uh, and he tells of his approval of this servant, this Jesus, who did his will completely. It really is showing us that he is the Father. God the Father placed value upon the servant. Look at these words. He tells us here in 13, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. But what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. You see, God the Father is the voice speaking in, these, in this first stanza, and he tells of his approval of his son, the servant, who did his will completely. Think about that just for a moment. In all the world, in all the universe, in all the universe, the enormity of it all, all uh, things uh, animated and alive and inanimate objects, uh, almost all do God's will completely. And finally, except sinful men and women and fallen angels who have a place prepared for them called the lake of fire and hell. Jesus did the Father's will completely. Look at A. God said, see my servant. Well, this is Jesus. Not the evidence for this, if you will. Well, there's external evidence uh, uh, to the passage itself. Keep your finger in our key text here. But look at, look at uh, Acts uh, chapter 8. It's that wonderful story of Philip, who is directed by the Lord to, to go down into a, to a road in the desert near Gaza. We hear a lot about Gaza Strip today. And Philip 
this uh, deacon at that church in Jerusalem goes down. He's the uh, evangelist here. And uh, he comes upon a man in a chariot. And in Acts 8, 26 and following, let's just notice this because of all things, the, the eunuch who's in the chariot is not a Christian. And uh, he is reading as he's going along in the chariot this very passage, Isaiah 52, 53. And he's going to ask uh, Philip, who was the prophet talking about here? It's incredible, this, this external witness to the very passage of which we're preaching, trying to answer the question, who is the servant? And God's inerrant word tells us who it is. And so, verse 27, so he started out, and on his way he met the Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, and the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near to it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. And so he invited Philip to come up into the chariot and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. It's Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Then the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who was the prophet talking about himself, or is it someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. He preached to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we have God's final, final word on if there were any doubt at all as to who Isaiah is writing about. It is of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you say, what about the internal evidence of the passage itself, that hand? And I say to you that uh, with the many, many predictions that are given here, uh, it uh, only fits one. In all of human history, it only fits one. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you are familiar with the children's story, Cinderella. We all love that and have heard that from the smallest of uh, ages, right? Maybe at your mama's knee, she read you the story of Cinderella. And with bated breath, the prince brings in the slipper, and he slides it on, and voila, it fits perfectly. We might say that uh, all the description that is given here of, of the suffering servant uh, it fits like a perfect Cinderella slipper under the very foot of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he and he alone that this Isaiah is writing about. Well, this servant in B will act wisely. The text tells us in thir verse 13, he'll act wisely. It, uh, in the Hebrew, it means he will succeed. He will succeed in his work as he's about uh, his father's business. Remember that when uh, he was left by his mom and dad, they left, and a couple days later, they realized, whoa, where's Jesus? When he was 12 years old. Uh, and then when they found him, he said, what, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And he was. And this summary statement reveals his success. 
by his reward. Now look at this. this. In case you would read over this quickly and not realize all that is being said here. The end of verse 13, he, that is Jesus, the suffering servant, uh, will be raised. He will be lifted up and will be highly exalted. Unless you think that somehow the prophet is just heaping words upon other words. In the, in the Hebrew text, there's a certain way that it's expressed. It's sequential. He will do this, then that, then that. And so he's not talking about one and the same event. Well, what is he saying here? He is saying 700 years beforehand that he will be raised. That's the resurrection. That's the reason we gather on the first day of the week. That's the reason why we're here today. He will be resurrected is what Isaiah is saying. And then lifted up, that's sequentially later at time. That's his ascension. That's Acts chapter 1 when they stood gazing up. I've stood there at the Mount of Olives numerous times gazing up and and that, it's no, no wonder in my imagination why they were standing there looking up to see a man go up, disappear, hidden by the clouds without a jetpack on, airplane, or any such thing. I think I'd be laying there. T- I might lay down on, the, on my back and just kind of look up for an hour or two. I never saw anything like that. That, the second phrase, is referring to his ascension and finally highly exalted refers to his exaltation. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. So in a summary statement, the suffering servant, because he did the will of the Father completely and finally, he is resurrected, he is is ascended, and he is exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's what uh, he is telling us here in verse 13 in a summary statement. The proof Uh, that he did the Father's will was that he was raised. He did it completely. Well, in verse 14, a description is given of our Savior. Look at it. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. Better translation would be rendered speechless. Speechless. Look back just a couple of pages at Isaiah 50, verse 6. If not, I have it on, on the board here. Jen has it. Uh, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And because of that, many were appalled at him, speechless. They they were in shock, as it were, uh, at, uh, at what they saw, speechless at the horrible sight. His appearance no longer looked human. He was so totally beaten in the scourging and all that uh, he endured prior to the cross. A horrible sight was this man, God's own son, speechless, horrible sight. Oftentimes, uh, if you watch the History Channel at all, you'll see a lot of times our GIs uh, going into the prison camps. Horrible places, the stench of burning flesh and the ovens where millions, six million Jews and gypsies and the unwanted were, were, were destroyed in the Hitler's final solution. And you look at the eyes of the GIs when they go in and, and see the internment camps and they're horrified. It's beyond uh, 
imagination, the horror of what men can do to other men. Speechless, appalled, so utterly horrified at what they have seen. I've seen hardened soldiers after, at that point, weeping on the History Channel film footage. Horrified. That's the idea here. When they gaze upon this one who was beaten beyond recognition, he didn't even appear to be human. God did that for us through the hands of sinful men and women so that we might be saved because of the Lamb of God. Well, the, de- the goal or the aim of his work is given in, in verse 15. So he would sprinkle many nations, the goyim, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. The goal of, his, of all of this would be for him to sprinkle many, many nations. This word sprinkling always refers to cleansing through the blood. Uh, in the uh, Leviticus 16 passage, which is the instruction on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, here in 1614, he he is to take some of the bull's blood and with his fingers sprinkle, there's the word, it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle, it's the same Hebrew word, some of it with his fingers seven times. He is is to... uh, to be involved with sprinkling. It involves to make uh, a moral cleansing through the sprinkling of blood. And in our Savior's case, all of the Yom Kippur, the slaughter on the Day of Atonement of that animal once a year, uh, was prefiguring the final work of the Lamb of God, that God would sprinkle through His own Son's blood and provide for us a moral cleansing and a forgiveness of sin. It would be through His blood that we are delivered. Praise the Lord for that. Well, the kings and leaders of many nations will be so overwhelmed when they hear what Jesus did for them, they will shut their mouths. The Hebrew word is they'll take their hand and they'll cover their mouths in horror when they hear of what God has done for men and women and boys and girls. They'll gasp in silence, not speaking a word. They'll shut their mouths in adoration and in worship and in silence. Well, God tells us of his approval of his son who did his will completely. God is telling us that he put total value on his son in his work, that he esteemed it. And the resurrection was proof of it. But then he moves on into chapter uh, 53 in our English Bibles, and he moves into the second stanza of this uh, suffering servant sonata, foretelling to us both the work and the reward of Jesus. We discover here in, in this section, verses 1 to 9, that it's no longer God the Father speaking, but now it's a, it's a believing Israel that now speaks and foretells the report believed by these Gentile kings. Begins in, in, uh, in verse 1 by saying, Who has believed our message or our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him 
Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We discover here in this believing Israel speaking and foretelling of the report believed by the Gentiles, He's going to tell us that Israel, though God placed all value on Christ and his work, that uh, Israel did not. They missed it completely. Let me hasten ahead to say they missed it, but don't you miss it. Don't you miss it. It is the capstone and the focus and the center of all of life. It's not Washington and the politics and all that ad nauseum that goes on. It's, it's not IBM or Ford Motor Company or any of that business endeavor. People give their lives to these things. They're a distraction. It's not sports. These things are okay in their place, of course, but they are infinitely less than the chief and the ultimate thing of life, and that is to worship God and to serve Him and to fall down with, with, with Thomas and say before the Lord Jesus the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. That's what Isaiah is telling us in Easter in Isaiah. Well, what is this report? What It is the message of the gospel. And he says, who has believed our message? Who has believed our report? Well, what is that? It's the gospel. It's the great report. We used to have report cards uh, when I was in school, and I'm sure they still do, I hope. Right? Every nine weeks, as it were, had to sit down with my father. He wanted to know what the report was. And he was real curious in the early grades what the teacher wrote on the backside. Citizenship. Didn't know what that meant. I discovered it meant don't hit your neighbor. These kind of things. What's the report? How come you got this? Why didn't you get that? You know, and it was sometimes a good report. Uh, sometimes it wasn't a good report. Some of you are smiling. You understand that. This is a report that is above all reports. It's better than peace in Europe, V-Day, peace in, in Japan. My, those, those things meant a lot to my father as he would celebrate with John Philip Sousa's marching man and march around the house and celebrate victory in Europe, victory in Japan. And the report of that and the wonder of that after all those years at war and all that died and all the suffering, what a great report. It's nothing by comparison to the report of the greatest thing that was ever done, the gospel of Christ and what he accomplished for, your, for you and for me on Calvary's cross. Who has believed this report? And yet I'm reminded most people, most people do not place value upon that. He's asking, who has believed our message? You know, we live in a world where the ocean of humanity does not believe this report, do they? They do not. A convoluted article in the front page. I just had time to glance at it this morning in our newspaper today. Of all things, to put such nonsense of the resurrection on the front page of the Harrisburg, uh, the Patriot News, where they're joining together. Can't we get together with all sorts and even the Muslims and all that? Ah, craziness. Muhammad's still in the ground. And all the rest of them are. There's only one, and there's only one message. Listen, tolerance is not the great truth. Truth is the great truth. It is the truth of God's Word. 
Who is believed the report? Not many. Listen, men, wide and broad is the way that leads to hell. And these are Jesus' words in Matthew 7. And many are on that path. Many. Don't have to do anything. Just be born, go along in life. Your sin will take you right to hell. It will. Narrow is the way, and few be it that find it. You see, there's an ocean of humanity that does not believe this report, does not believe the gospel. Oh, they may hear of it. They may give lip service to it. They may show up on Easter and Christmas Sundays, these kind of things, and they don't believe it. They've not personally ever said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I deserve hell. Thank you for dying in my place. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Isaiah writes, who has believed this report? Don't, don't it let, let it not be you that miss this. Don't be you. Don't let it be you. Most people have. They do not place value upon this. The big news today is not Easter in our world. It's, it's March Madness and basketball and all of that. Good things in their place, but far less of import. And in fact, they fade into oblivion, really, compared to the great truth of the resurrection of Christ. Well, kings and others, number one, will believe upon him, but most will not believe. This servant did not appear to be a king. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. He had no root, out of, uh, he, uh, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Well, what's he mean by this? Well, this servant did not appear to be a king. There was no dash about him. We see that all with our presidential uh, campaigning going on, the Democratic primary. Uh, Obama gave a speech this last week. I heard one commentator saying, that was very presidential. I don't know what your thoughts. I I really don't care about that. But there there is a sense where he's our leader. He looks like a leader. Remember they picked Saul because he was head and shoulders above all? And that's not uh, shampoo. He was up there. He was tall. He looked like John F. Kennedy. Boy, he's handsome. How many women voted for him back when? Because he was handsome. I don't know what he stands for, but he looks good. He looks like a king. He looks like a president. Jesus did not have anything about his appearance that you said, he ought to be our king. He ought to be our president. He ought to be our leader. Isn't that amazing? That's what Isaiah is telling us. He, and in fact, like a root out of dry ground. What, what's he mean by that? A root or a tender root, a root out of uh, a dry ground, it, it means he seems so unpromising. He didn't seem to be the main event, if you will. Uh, it also has reference to the virgin birth. Uh, some of you are great gardeners and farmers, and pretty soon here with the weather it would warm up just a little bit more. Faith and I had the joy of being down in... Uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, this last week to see Greg and Sarah and, our, of course, our little grandbaby. And they're weeks ahead of us. We just look at all the azaleas. They're blooming and all the beauty of that. And all the other flowers are going, oh, I wish it would. And we came back here, and it was uh, 29 this morning. 
and, uh, and, and so on. And, and you know that when you work the, the soil there, it's got to have nutrients, got to be watered. And when you do that, it produces a, a beautiful a foliage and flowering and all of that. Well, when, they, when you looked at Jesus' life, Isaiah is speaking here. We looked at him. It didn't look like he was the main event. Didn't go to the rabbinical schools. He wasn't part of the mainline Judaism. Uh, he, in fact, he was born, he lived, he lived in Galilee. What's that? Nothing ever good came out of uh, Nazareth. He didn't seem to be the main event. He didn't look like a king. There was nothing about him. He, he seemed to, to be way over here, uh, where, where something came about where you would not expect it even. There, the virgin birth of our Lord. Wow. His appearance was so common, so ordinary. The text says there was no beauty or majesty to attract us uh, to him. Wow. Ordinary. Jesus identified with the very common. Aren't you glad about that? There's a whole theology on that. You know, you say, well, I'm, I, I'm just so ordinary. I'm just so common. I can't shoot a basketball. I can't shoot a rifle. I can't hardly do this, can't hardly do that. I'm just so ordinary. And listen, the world is filled with ordinary common people. Abraham Lincoln said it, God must have loved the common people for he made so many of us. And Jesus, when he came, now just think of it. If you were God the Father, how would you orchestrate all of that in the sending of your own son? I mean, would you send him to a place that had no room in the inn for him? There's a theology in that. To be raised in almost total obscurity there in Nazareth. And then to live, and he would say to his followers, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Wow. And he looked ordinary in appearance. He wasn't tall. He didn't have, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger muscles rippling. He didn't have a six-pack probably. Though he had worked with stone and carpentry, I don't think he was a mamby-pamby type man. But uh, he was so ordinary, so common, Eastern, uh, 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 Middle Eastern in appearance uh, uh, and, and so on. He didn't have, I'm sure, blue eyes. I'm sure they were brown. He was darker and his skin was more of a darker tone, as we know of that, uh, that whole ancestry line through Mary. He was common. He was not beautiful. Uh, no majesty. He was missed. He was missed. And three, he was missed because he lacked a following. You think of some of the great men, the great leaders. They have an entourage of people that surround them, counselors, advisors, wealthy people that support them. And Jesus didn't have any of that. And finally, when the great crowds thinned out and left, he said to uh, his disciples, will you also leave? <laughs> and it was rightly said, well, to whom shall we go? You're the one that has the words of life. He didn't have the great following that uh, perhaps some and the secular orientation of what a king ought to have by way of a following. He didn't have that at all. That's what it meant. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, and we missed him. Israel is speaking. We missed him. The promised one came, according to the Scriptures, and we were thinking uh, in the total wrong vein, thinking somehow he would be a conquering Messiah, would defeat the Romans, and be a political hero. We missed him. We missed him. We missed him. Man of sorrows. Why was he a man of sorrows? 
Well, just think about it. We live in a polluted stream that's very unholy. You can see it. Some of you that have lived longer and have watched uh, even the common popular culture, not only in music and in novels, but uh, the television. And you remember back uh, not too many decades ago, it was more decent. And now it's just like anything goes. A guy will date a girl and he jumps in bed with her in a moment. You know, first, uh, this, uh, it's, 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 it's fornication. And, it, well, that's the way it is. And couples live together and all this. And, it, and just, and when I see a governor in New York and he resigns and his replacement, he announces, I just wanted to clear the record. That, and it's a horrible story. And it's just one after. We just keep saying, where's it going to go? I mean, can it get any lower? And here's holy God in the person of Christ living among such a sinful people. Some of you had very godly grandmothers or great-grandmothers, and uh, they're in heaven today, or granddads. And if they could just instantly come back and see the culture, they would just be horrified. It would be grievous to them to live in such a wicked world in which we live in. And here's Holy Son of God living among people that hate God, love sin, and despise holiness and righteousness. And the sorrow, the pressure upon him just with that. He was a man of sorrows, and we missed him. We missed him, verses 1 to 3. And then B, Israel confesses that they missed him. They missed his, They missed him. Uh, because they placed no value on his life, verses 1 to 3, and, and now the very heart of our Bible, where we've memorized our verse, verse 6, we missed him because Israel is going to say we placed no value upon his death. Surely, verse 4, he took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Israel confesses that they missed him. For they placed no value upon his death whatsoever. When Jesus was crucified, Israel thought his hardships were deserved for his supposedly having blasphemed God by claiming to be God. Actually, Christ was bearing the judgment that their sin required. His death satisfied the wrath of God against sin. You see, our iniquity, our sin had to be punished. And God himself did it all. That's why I say, take off your shoes. The ground that we're standing upon is holy ground. God did all of this for us. I urge you, if you never have, to embrace Christ the Lord as your Savior, the risen one, to be your all in all and your very reason for living. Israel confesses, be that we missed him. We placed no value on his death. Jesus took the consequences of our sin, the infirmities and the sorrows. He took them upon himself. All of the infirmities and the sorrows point to 
uh, our ultimate death. And Matthew talks about that in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, where we discover there in that text that, um, do we have that for the board, Matthew 8, 17? We find Matthew using the words that the Lord fulfilled, uh, even this text. Let me read that for you. 8.17, when, when, when the Lord heals Peter's mother-in-law. And when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried, he carried our diseases. When Jesus healed people of their physical illnesses, though certainly not all of their illnesses, and when he did, in these his earthly ministry was pointing to the greater work on the cross in which he would take care of sin that brought upon about our, our, our illnesses and our sicknesses. He took the consequences of our sin. This servant was the substitute in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgression. Uh, notice, I'll call one thing to your attention, that in verses 4, 5, and 6, in these three verses, ten times, to show how, how wonderfully personal this is, we discover the personal pronouns, we, us, our. He did it for us as our substitute. In baseball, they'll, occasionally a hitter will need a substitute to go and bat for him. And sometimes uh, he'll do well. Uh, by, by, uh, by hitting, and it'll pay off in that baseball strategy as the substitute goes and does that and maybe hits the ball for a weaker hitter. Well, here it's the same idea, but infinitely of greater value. He took our very place in bearing the wrath that we deserved and paying the price for our sin. This servant was the substitute. In verse 5, he was pierced. That's literally, that's the driving of the nails through his hands and through his feet. He was pierced for us. He was crushed. There is a figurative uh, expression. Uh, the, uh, the, he was pierced and the peace. Notice all of this brought the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Peace. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wouldn't you love the world to be at peace? Sometimes you'll say, what would you like to have? You'll see that in a beauty contest. Ask a beautiful girl up there in this contest. What would you like? World peace. Oh, wouldn't that be something if we could have the world at peace? But even as we speak, men and women are killing each other, brutalizing the horror of that. But someday there will be peace because we have peace with God. You see, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are born at enmity or at hostile. We were the enemies of God by birth. That's a rare message you don't hear in many pulpits, but it is a straightforward teaching of God's Word. Well, what's going to bring peace then? There must be a purchase price made, and Christ in his own body made that price, secured the peace so that we are no longer enemies of God, but we have peace with God. 
And isn't it great? One of the great fruits of the Spirit is, is the peace of God that we experience as we live for Christ the Lord. Wow. He is our substitute. Well, the benefit of all this was to provide salvation for the world. It's the key verse of the whole sonata, if you will. It reminds me of uh, John. John must have been thinking of it when he wrote John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. For in verse 6, as we've been memorizing this month, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. That's the iniquity, the sin of us all. Substitute, he took our place. We did not esteem him. We missed him. Wow. There was a story told during the Civil War. Uh, a company of irregulars known as bushwhackers. They were arrested by the Union soldiers because they were guerrilla fighters and often would not be in any uniform. They were all sentenced to be shot. A courageous young boy in the Union Army touched his commanding officer on the arm and he pleaded, and I quote, Won't you allow me to take the place of one of the men you've just condemned to die? I know him well. He has a large family and they need him badly. My parents are dead, and I only have a few friends. No one will miss me. Please, let me take his punishment. The officer initially hesitated, but finally gave his consent. Pulling the husband and father to one side, the young man filled his position in the death line. There is a stone that marks his grave in a little southern town, and these are the words that are on that gravestone, and I quote, sacred. To the memory of Willie Lear, he took my place. That's what Jesus did. He took my place. And he took your place if you'll have him. If you won't have him and you die lost without ever receiving him, you will pay forever and ever and ever without end in a place of the lake of fire for your sin. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing if it was five bucks, every American would own a ticket to heaven. I did something. We'd feel good about that. You know, we like that. But we can't. We're dead. We're lost in our trespasses and sin. If there's to be any help, any solution, it must come from God. In His great redemptive plan of history, He has provided a Savior for us. And His name is Christ the Lord. You must receive Him as your Lord and as your Savior. Well, finally, in verses 7 through 9, Israel now speaks, describing Jesus' death. Look at these words. In verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for this reason, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now Israel is describing in these verses that Jesus' death. In verse 7, we see that Jesus was totally passive. He, uh, 
He was oppressed and afflicted, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was totally submissive. He died willingly. Nobody took his life. He laid it down on his own accord. It was the will of God, and it was his desire to do the Father's will completely. His physical abuse and trials are described in verse 8. That's what he means when he says, by oppression and judgment. They were monkey trials at best. And you can go through the text and, and discover that there were six of them. They were illegal, and the outcomes of them were bogus completely. They pronounced him guilty and worthy of death. Jesus died childless. That's what he's saying. And who can speak of his descendants? He died without ever marrying. He died without any earthly descendants. No children, no grandchildren. He died in the prime of life. That's what it means. He was cut off. You would have expected him to live. At 33 years of age, he would have lived a full life. But he was cut off. And it demonstrates the violent nature of his execution from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. His burial is mentioned in verse 9. God would not allow his son to be buried in this honor. Though he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Do you remember that? They were going to put him, his naked body, in a common grave with other uh, criminals as such. But God would not allow it. Now there's a great message here for all of us. You see, the Lord had done the Father's will completely and finally. And when it was done, that was it, you know? They couldn't touch him any, anymore. They could not disabuse him. Once Jesus had done the job, wicked hands could touch him no longer. God would not permit it. They desired at one point to break his legs. They wanted to, but he was already deceased. They, did, they wanted to bury him in shame, but God would not allow it. Rather, he buried him in honor. This far and no further. And here's the message, not only for the Lord, who did the Father's will completely, but for us as well. There's nothing that comes into our lives as a child of God that God has not foreordained. It's this far and no further. God sets all the boundaries of time, of space, of your life, your abilities. There's no accident that we're all here today. All of them, all the facets and the minutiae of your life and mine, God establishes all of that. Praise be to God. It would overwhelm our puny minds. It doesn't take much to do that, does it? At least mine. Get a few things going there, and, and I'm all over the place. I marvel at Faithy. She's able to do like five things at once. I get exhausted watching. I have to be one thing at a time, do it, do it, and then the next, and the next. Are you like that? Most men are like that, right? Women are changing diapers, making a meal, mopping the floor, and doing the windows at sort of the same time. It's just like I get dizzy watching it. It just overwhelms me. I'm glad for other reasons even, that I'm a man and not a woman, though I appreciate the glory of a woman. A woman is the glory of man. Did you know that? God says that. It's absolutely and wonderfully amazing. God sets all the boundaries. They wanted to throw him in a common grave. God said, 
You won't do that. And God overruled. They wanted to break his way. God said, no. He has finished doing my will, and you won't do any more. And God established the boundary, and they couldn't break past it. And the same thing is true in your heart and mind. Take hope in that. Take comfort in that. God is in control of all things. He's amazing. God would not allow a son to be buried in dishonor, the Lamb of God. Well, finally, the third and final glorious stanza foretelling to us both, both the wonder and the glory of the work and the reward of Jesus in verses 10 to 12. God again is speaking, and he tells of the reward he would give to Jesus. Look at these wonderful words. Yet it was the Lord's will, that's the Father's will, to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, he'll see the light of life, that's the resurrection, and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. A, Jesus would be highly exalted because he offered his life as a trespass offering. A trespass offering is one of the offerings in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, which means an offering that was completely consumed. There was nothing there for, you, for them to sit down and to eat or to take home. It wasn't like the meal offering or some of the others. He was completely consumed as the trespass offering. Though innocent, Jesus was bruised by God the Father. Look at this glorious passage in Acts chapter 2 that says it so well. That, and this describes all of life, God's wonderful purpose, and yet encompasses the free acts of moral or immoral men and women. Look what he says uh, Peter preaching in the very first sermon, this man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, he's speaking to those in Jerusalem, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him impossible. What a glorious statement, combining that mystery of God's sovereign will and yet incorporating the so-called free will acts of men and women. It's a mystery. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Yet number two, after Jesus' death, the text tells us he would see his offspring. These are believers. If you're here today and you know Christ the Lord is your Savior, that's you in the picture. That's you. You are part of his offspring. In, in the Hebrew, it's the word seed. You're part of his seed through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He would see, in verse 11, the light of life. After he was totally consumed, the light of life is 700 years ahead. In prophet's language and in their, his words, speaking of the resurrection of Christ, his work would justify many because he bore our iniquities. 
Verse 12 is a summary statement of the whole sonata. Therefore, God would highly exalt Jesus. In verse 12, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul tells us of that wonderful passage um, and see if we have that on our, our display. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. I'll read that to you. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can read that later. You see, he is glorified. When we see him again, and all men and women who have ever lived will see him and will worship him, he will not be the humble, suffering servant. He'll be the glorious, magnificent Lord of glory and almighty power when he comes for us, his church, in the day that the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord forever and ever. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He'll come in might and power. Why? Because he is the exalted Son of God seated at the right hand of the Father. Praise to the Lord. Well, what can we say by way of lessons for our life quickly and will be done? Number one, first lesson that we can say as a result of all this. Number one, Jesus' death provides the only way to heaven. If there were five ways to heaven, I would tell you that. If there were ten, I would tell you that. If I told you all religions were, were great highways, like the Pennsylvania Turnpike, that led to not only Pittsburgh and Philly, but also the heaven, I would tell you that. I'm just the delivery guy. I didn't make the message. I'm, but I've got to be faithful. I'll give an account for delivering and how I accurately cut the word and, and, and preach and teach God's word. There's only one way to heaven. Let God be true and every man a liar. We live in such a mushy world. Anything goes. Sloppy thinking. Just, uh, can't we all hug? Well, we can. It doesn't mean we all go to heaven. There's one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You must repent of your sin. You are a sinner as I. Born in sin and we sin. We're separated, alienated from God, lost. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ, his death as your sin substitute. You can do that simply with open, outstretched hands saying, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying in my place, taking the price of my sin, all of it, past, present, and future. You must do that. Don't let the day pass if you have not trusted Christ, before you get in bed and go to sleep tonight, just before your bed, head hits the pillow, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. It's the greatest, most important thing. Isaiah said in 53.1, Who has believed our report? Oh, don't you miss it. Receive Christ as Savior. Number two, marvel. Marvel again at God's amazing word. Marvel at it. I've made it a study for many, many years in my life. And the more I study it, it the greater it seems to me. The more I'll never be able to get, to get my arms around it. But you would expect that from a God who's infinite. Wonderful. Marvel. 700 years ahead. 
He sends the announcement of his son, the glory of his death, the wonder of his resurrection through the pen of Isaiah. I know at Christmas time years ago, I, I would say we had three children, and we always send, send out birth announcements after with, uh, with everything. Don't want to be presumptuous even in today when you can discover the, if it's a boy or a girl ahead of time. Things happen still even in our day. We wouldn't want to do that ahead of time. But we'd say, it's a boy, it's a girl. We announce after. Only God, who knows all things, has given us the wonder of his word. 700 years ahead could give us such a wonderful foreannouncement of the glory of his son, the wonder of his death, and the glory of his resurrection. Marvel, I say. Number three, be amazed at how blind people are to what God is doing. Be amazed. We live in a world where people are absolutely and totally stumbling about in total darkness as to what God is up to. It's not, un, it's not too uncommon to what happened back in the Lord's day. There, God incarnate lived among people. And yet most of the Roman Empire was completely ignorant to the vicinity of God who was right in their midst. And they saw the evidence of it. And they were ignorant, and blind, willfully, loving sin rather than loving God. Don't you be one of them. Don't you miss him. I say that to you. We live in a day of the wheat and the tares, and they're mixed together. I wish uh, people that were redeemed, their eyes would turn like a certain color. They could look and say, you're in, you're in, you're not in. You need to repent and be, be believe and be saved. But we don't know that, right? We don't know that. I wish every one of you would be saved, but I don't know. Don't miss him who has believed our report in your heart. Say, I have believed it. It's the gospel. It's for me. Number three, number four, I mean, <clears throat> embrace some of the greatest words ever uttered on this Easter morning. He is not here. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. I'm telling you, the more loved ones that I have the privilege of laying in the dust of the earth, and if the Lord lets us live, you too. We'll be laying more of our loved ones, if, unless we should die first. More and more of our loved ones will be laying in the soil of the earth, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. The more I love the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have a living hope, and so do you if you're in Christ. All these words, he is not here. He's risen just as he said, are marvelous words. Some of the best words ever said among the dribble of millions of words that have ever been said in humanity's history. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Number five and last, be encouraged. God has a great plan. He's right on time, and he's unstoppable. You cannot stop him. He's right on time. He's not late. You and I are late. I'm five minutes. I'm running behind. This or that. That came up. Unstoppable, right on time. God has a great plan. That is, my friends, Easter in Isaiah. Take off your shoes. The ground that we stand here is holy ground. 
be amazed.